in our service, a special time where we get to pray for one another. My favorite prayer within the service is this prayer of intercession, a prayer that is pastoral in nature for the kingdom of God on this earth. Let us now go before the Lord and lift up many things in prayer. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, you are merciful and gracious to us as your creature. We thank you, O Lord, that as your children we could gather here on this day and make requests to you. We think of, O Lord, the civil world around us, and we see in our very own time and this very own day of wars and rumors of wars, of, up, of upheaval and unrest throughout all the world. And so for, O Lord, we pray for your church therein. We pray, O Lord, for the nation of Israel. We pray that as there have been terrible events over the past week or perhaps a little longer, we pray, O Lord, that you would protect uh, the civilian populations, whether they be in Israel or in the state of Palestine. We pray, O Lord, that you'd be gracious for life. We also pray, O Lord, for justice, though. We pray that you would bring a swift end to terrorism in that region, but also throughout all the world. That, O Lord, if you do not save these people, that you would bring their demise and their demise quickly. We pray, O Lord, for that gracious act but we pray for justice and peace throughout all our land and throughout all the world. We pray also, O Lord, for missions and ministry throughout the, our own country. We think of the Wadhams as they serve the Lumi Indians. We pray that you would continue to bless them in their service in Washington and that through their ministry, many would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, O Lord, that you would refresh them when they are discouraged, that you would encourage them when they lose sight, and that you would restore them when they fail. But we pray, O oh Lord, that you would sustain them now in their ministry, and that the fruits of that ministry would be seen by them as a great encouragement to them, but also to your glory as well. We pray for this family, that you, O oh Lord, would use their ministry to expand the visible church that you have put them over there in Washington. We pray also, O Lord, for the lost. In the same manner as we just prayed a few minutes ago, we pray, O Lord, for those who are lost in the Middle East. A place, O Lord, that was once fertile for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, where the early church dwelt, now largely does not know you, but not only rejects you, O Lord, as hostile to the faith altogether. We pray, O Lord, for the Coptic church and the various uh, traditions of Christian faith throughout those lands. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would protect the Christian church there and that in that protection, that they would continue in boldness and grace and truth to proclaim the risen Christ even to those who hostily hate him. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would soften the hearts of the Arabian people and that in that softening, there would be revitalization in the faith therein. We pray, O oh Lord, that these lost would come to know you and to know you quickly. Soften their hearts. Use ministers. Raise them up, whether they be in our own congregation or throughout any congregation that proclaims the true and living God. Oh Lord, bring the gospel back to the Middle East. We pray also, oh Lord, for our own congregation that we, oh Lord, would be a people that grow in grace and truth. We pray for our families here this morning that you would instill within our families a cultural of covenant faithfulness, that our fathers, O Lord, would boldly lead in Christ, teaching their children to pray, 
teaching their children to read and understand the Scriptures, teaching even their children to sing. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would instill this on the hearts of all the men in this congregation, that they would be holistically faithful to youth in their families. And we pray, O oh Lord, for the mothers as well in that regard, that they support their fathers or husbands, and that in that support, the children of our congregation would know not a day apart from you. Grant us grace in this regard as we often see failings, whether they be in our own lives or in the lives of our children. Grant us reprieve when we see or don't see the faith continue or begin to well up in our children. But, O oh Lord, we pray that you'd be gracious to us, that as a, as a congregation we would not only grow closer together, but we'd also grow closer to you, and that we would see the youngest among us profess. Be with our families, O Lord. In the same way, we pray for our families. We pray for my wife, Marissa, as she recovers in the hospital at the birth of our thirdborn. O Lord, give her rest, as we know in our home there will be many restless nights forward. O Lord, be gracious to us and remind us of the things we just prayed for with the youngest among us. O Lord, give me grace to rear baby Henry well, as well as John Owen and Charles. Be gracious to my wife as she recuperates and recovers. We also pray, O Lord, for Virgil, as we've prayed regularly for him over the past couple of months. We pray, O Lord, that you'd continue to be of great importance to his mind. We pray that as he dwells upon you, as he often regularly does, that you would be kind to him in granting his requests. We know, O oh Lord, that he longs to be with you. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant him that great desire and wish. As we've prayed often for him, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we know that he desires this more than anything. Be gracious, O oh Lord, to this dear brother. We also lift up our sister Debbie as she has a growth, uh, a cancerous growth. We pray, O oh Lord, that as she seeks help from doctors and surgeons as they remove it, we pray that the surgery coming up this Wednesday would be successful, but not only successful, encouraging. We pray, O oh Lord, that the cancer has not spread and that this would be the only treatment that she would need outside of the radiation to come forward. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be with her family, that you would remind her even now that her church is praying for her and caring for her. But we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd send an extra portion of your spirit to her. Sustain her, O oh Lord. Calm any anxious thoughts that she might have. Give her encouragement where it is needed. And remind her that you, O oh Lord, are her rock. Be with all of these prayers, O oh Lord, as we pray for them this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke with me. We are continuing there in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 5 and 6, there are four controversies. We saw the first controversy last week between Jesus and the Pharisees. You remember the paralytic that was lowered from the roof into the home, and Jesus said the unthinkable. He said, your sins are forgiven you. 
It was a controversial statement. How can a mere mortal in the Pharisee's mind forgive only what the more immortal can forgive? God himself. And so we saw some controversy. This is the first controversy that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And, but many come after in quick succession. Today we see another controversy, the second controversy, which is Jesus dining with da- uh, tax collectors. The Pharisees, again, from a distance, watch the party from outside and wag their fingers. How can Jesus dwell with such scum of the earth? And then next week, hopefully, we will take up, Lord willing, controversy three and four together. These controversies deal both with the Sabbath, as Jesus both does a need of necessity of picking grain so that his disciples could eat, but also a need of mercy as Jesus heals on the Sabbath. We're going to take those two together since they are the same topic and idea. But today, we are with the tax collectors. The second controversy, will you stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 5? Picking up in verse 27. This is the word of God. Hear from it now. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, He will tear the new, and the pieces from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put in fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. In middle school and high school, I was part of a a motley crew. A motley crew. I don't mean I was a member of the 1980s metal band that my mom often listened to in the car. This was a different type of motley crew. Our group was odd and diverse. We had all sorts of odd crew members within our band of misfits. They included, oddly enough, preppy kids, athletic kids, nerdy kids, oddballs, and outcasts. We had one unifying creed, perhaps two as time would go on, is that we all loved to skateboard. As you know, as I mentioned from time to time, I take no liability if anyone breaks their arms in the congregation from skateboarding. But that's what tied us together. Later, the Lord Jesus Christ would tie many of us together in 
further narrow that crew into a good group of friends that I still love today. But we are a motley crew of individuals. Jesus Christ in this passage calls a motley crew of disciples. Odd, misfits, sinners, fishermen, tax collectors, those who were once ill, now made right. It's a motley crew of people. As we have said perhaps a few moments or a few weeks ago, is that we expect Jesus perhaps to find the best in Judeo, his Judeo society. Why not take from the scribes and the Pharisees, those who have been hand-plucked, those who have been trained well in the word of God, but instead of choosing perhaps the elites of his age, he chooses the oddest people. And that's what we get in this story today. After the fishermen are called, now Jesus goes to a tax booth and calls a tax collector. Jesus shows us today that there are more undesirables in society than merely those who have physical ailments. Not merely the leprous man, not merely the paralytic, but some jobs in society make you less trustworthy and likable than others. And in Israel, the tax collector was that, a scoundrel of their people. In the ancient world, there were less trustworthy, there were, there were no one less trustworthy than the tax collector. They ranked well in our own age as politicians do, as lawyers, as car salesmen, as telemarketers, perhaps as real estate agents, maybe for some of you doctors, I don't know. You find the, the, the job that you trust least. I hate buying a new vehicle. Even when the salesman assures me that I have made a good deal on this purchase, I walk away feeling just incredibly dirty. I have lost thousands of dollars. I already know it. I've sold my car for $3,000 under the Kelly Blue Book and it's in pristine condition. You just feel like you've lost those scoundrels. I never trust a car salesman. And that's what we see here. Jesus inviting car salesmen with the shoddiest background, selling the worst cars for the most exorbitant prices. Jesus here associates himself with such moral filth. And what we see is that as Jesus does, we see right in the center of that passage that Jesus calls sinners to repentance. Why does he invite the Levites of the world? It is to call them to repentance. And that's what he calls us today to as well. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. And there are three ideas I want you to get out of that main proposition. The first is that you are a sinner. Jesus calls sinners to repentance and you are one of them. <laughs> you are one of them. Let's look at this sinner in verse 27. And after he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, he said to them, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. When you're thinking about sinners... We begin with the person of Levi himself as a similar response as a few verses ago with the call of Peter. Jesus says, follow me. And what does Levi do? He does exactly what Peter does. He leaves everything in order to follow Jesus. The same word that caused the paralytic man last week to rise from his mat and go is the same word that causes Levi to rise from his tax booth and to follow Jesus Christ. But who was Levi? You might be wondering. You see Levi here. Who, who is he? 
He's no reference to the 12 disciples, but he is actually one of them. He is going by a different name, incognito perhaps in this passage. Levi is actually the disciple Matthew, the one who wrote one of the other Gospels, the only other tax collector in the bunch, at least named explicitly like this. He's kind of like Peter. Peter, as we've already saw, has the name Simon just a few chapters ago, but elsewhere in Luke we might see his name as Cephas. They all have various nicknames. Matthew was called Levi, and you might wonder why Levi. Well, I, I in my own overactive imagination, assumed there were two Matthews in the group, and he had to distinguish one Matthew from the other. My best friend growing up was named Scott, and so we couldn't go, both go by Scott. It was confusing, and so I was called Ed. If you, if you look at me and say Ed, I'll probably turn. It's as normal as to me as the name Scott. There are two Scots. Can't have two Scots can't have two Matthews. This one's Levi. Why is he Levi? It's because he's a Levite. His name comes from his tribe, his clan, as my own name came from my clan and tribe. And so we have some ironic twists here. The Levitical tax collector. Nothing more oxymoronic than a Levitical tax collector. You remember in the Old Testament that the Levites were meant to get their inheritance from the Lord himself. They were not given any portion in the land. Their inheritance was the Lord. And so it's quite ironic then that this Levitical tax collector would tax the people of God in order for him to have an inheritance. And even worse, his inheritance would be from Caesar himself. Why the Jewish people hated tax collectors like we hate car salesmen is because they reminded them regularly of their own occupation. Every time the tax man cometh, they knew that they would be having to drudge up all of their wealth and give it to Caesar. They hated taxes, much like you hate taxes. Tax collectors, though, in those days were even worse than they are in our days. They would be expected to pay a certain amount and percentage, and then that tax collector, in order to make his own wealth, would squeeze you dry. They would go to their CPAs. Their bill would be 12000 but there would be a $3,000 markup, and they would be forced to pay 15000 in order to stay right with the big man in Rome. These tax collectors were vile people. One commentator said they were no different than gangsters and traitors. Just to give you an image, they were no different than gangsters or traitors. And because of all of this, they are viewed as sinners within society. They have forsaken their God, especially Matthew the Levite, has forsaken his God in order to serve another God named Caesar. He was despised. He was not welcome at any religious gathering in Israel. He sat in his tax booth, and that was his throne. He was a sinner. And this is the type of person Jesus calls. He calls the car salesmen among us. He calls the politicians among us. He calls the tax collectors among us. But what does Levi do? What does Matthew do after that call? After he leaves his tax booth, the first thing he does in verse 29, and Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. I wish I could be uh, probably at any event in the New Testament. You probably would, would choose various ones. I think this one would be one of the most interesting. Levi invites his perhaps conglomerate, his firm 
to meet Jesus. And the, this feast that is talked about here is actually a banquet with an honored guest, Jesus himself, a guest lecturer to bring them a message. But notice who else? Okay, the tax collector, sure. Others were also reclining, though. And this is why I would like to be there, is because of the others. You see, these filthy tax collectors that were usually swindlers invited others. But who were the others? Luke 14 actually tells us when Jesus said, whenever there is a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to join you. There's no reason we shouldn't think that this feast is any others than Jesus describes. So you have these swindlers inviting perhaps those who they've swindled. They invite the poor. They invite the crippled. It would have been a great image and picture the, the oddballs and the outcasts, the misfits of society, those who are hated by the religious order were all invited into this house for a feast with the honored guest, Jesus Christ himself. The right, righteous of society, they were not invited. It was those who are not allowed in the synagogues, those who are not allowed in the temple. They are the ones who are the, those who are invited to join Jesus there. And that is why... The Pharisees have such issue because these are people no one should associate with. It's a great application then for us. We are sinners like them. We're no different in moral standing from perhaps the tax collector, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind here. We are all sinners. You must recognize that burden of sin. As you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you must recognize your sin. Because as we'll see in a few moments, that Jesus comes for those who are sinners. The second thing I want you to know, as Jesus calls sinners to repentance, yes, you are a sinner, but, or because of that, you also need Jesus. It's quite a simple sermon in many regards. You are a sinner and you need Jesus. It seems like a gospel message wrapped in of itself. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, who do you eat and drink with? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisaical response to him that causes controversy here is that Jesus would associate himself with the lowest parts of society. You see, the Pharisees, as we described them perhaps a few weeks ago, we can describe them further here today. They got their name. They didn't give themselves this name, perhaps. They got their name because they were ones who were separated. They were separated ones. That's what the word Pharisee means, the separated ones. And because they were separated ones, they did not deal with the people that Jesus is dealing with here. That's why it was offensive to them. It was a menagerie of crooks, villains, perhaps sinners. As they looked on, the party was large enough that they could see the party going on from where they stood. And as they looked at that menagerie, they were filled with scoffing and distaste and disgust. How could Jesus be with them? Those tax collectors who openly oppressed our people. How could Jesus be with them? It would kind of be like if your pastor, you saw me at perhaps the best steakhouse in the St. Louis area. You come in and you see me sitting with all the judges of Madison County. I will let you conclude on the moral fitness of our own judicial system in this county. I'm not making any judgments. 
I will let you decide whether your opinion of me would go up or down if you saw me every week with those judges. Sure, there are good ones, but I assume there are a few that you'd find detestable. You would walk by our table and say, I cannot believe our pastor eats with them weekly. Why are his friends those judges? Why We are such better people. Why, why isn't he my friend? Why doesn't he invite me out to get prime rib? Why does he invite them? You'd, be dis, you'd have distaste, wouldn't you? <laughs> you have disgust, and maybe rightly so. Maybe you'd be like a Pharisee from a distance, and you'd say, if this is, praise the Lord, I'm not the Messiah, but if this is the Messiah, I want nothing to do with him. That's what these Pharisees thought here. They saw the, the proclaimed Messiah, and they said, if that's the Messiah, we don't want him. We are too good for him. Look who he associates himself with. We see that the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ offers, though, these perhaps motley crew of individuals is a cause for celebration. We see that in verse 30, and Jesus answers them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner to repentance. Why do they have a banquet where they are celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ himself? They have a banquet to celebrate Jesus Christ because he has called them to these two verses. They are celebrating the fact that despite their past, they can have salvation and life in him. And so Jesus desires that these Pharisees not view themselves as the righteous, but that they themselves would begin to recognize they too should join the celebration. They had a good doctrinal framework. They would understand that they too are sinners. They could go back to the Old Testament law and understand that they themselves are sick and they need the Messiah as much as the tax collector. That's why Jesus shares this with them. He hopes that perhaps upon the reception of these words that they would not view themselves as self-righteously important, but they too are sick. And as a physician, he has come to heal. It makes more sense when you think about Jesus dining with these people if you view Jesus as a physician. That he comes and he comes to those who are in need. Sometimes you don't know that you're in need, though. And that's what the Pharisees are going through in this passage. They are like men who think they are healthy but haven't been to the doctor in how many decades. Guilty of it myself. I think I'm in a perfect bill of health, but I have actually no idea. Because I've not been to a doctor. I don't know if I'm sick. I might be sick. You might be sick. But if you're like a man like myself, and your wife hounds you, get to the doctor, and you're like, I'll get around to it. And you never go. That's the Pharisee in you. You think you're healthy. You think you have a good bill of health. You have no need for a doctor. But who knows? Maybe if you went in, you'd find something that shows you truly need a doctor. That's what these Pharisees need to learn. See, you don't blame a doctor when he's around sick people. You expect him to be. During the great plague of England in the 17th century, it was quite ironic that as people fled London, 
even the doctors went with them. And what happened during that great plague, John Bunyan recounts of it in some of his memoirs. He was actually released from prison. It was so bad. Who went to the cities of London? It was those other physicians, the pastors. John Bunyan, after he was released from prison, would go to London to be with the sick. And that is what our Lord Jesus Christ does. He goes to those who are in need. He goes to where the sickness seems worse. And when he brings healing and salvation, what is the response? Should it be joy or remorse? That's what the Pharisees ask in verse 33 and 34 as they recount that the disciples of John and their disciples, they fast. They put on the sackcloth and ashes and they lament. But Jesus' disciples don't. And why don't they? Because they have the great physician with them. He has come to heal them. And so there's no other proper response than to celebrate. Perhaps as Presbyterians, we sometimes are a little hard on ourselves, maybe to a fault. We sense our own sin, and it cripples us. We're often discouraged by our growth in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is also true to remember that when the Lord Jesus Christ sends you His Spirit, when he, as we were talking in the confession of faith today, when there's effectual calling, you're regenerated, justified, and made new, there's a reason to celebrate. Christians these days can be so downcast and hopeless and dreary, but we may and should not be. We should be like this band of misfits, reveling in joy, not remorse, for the Messiah has come to save us. One commentator says this about this exchange. Jesus recognizes that comfortable, familiar forms of spirituality exert a narcotic effect that blurs the perception to new revelation. Even though Jesus brings them new wine, they are accustomed to the old and they find the new inferior. These Pharisees, their great struggle was that they had already bought completely into their system. They need not Jesus because what they have in their own minds is sufficient. This calls out to each of us that sin of self-righteousness. Our greatest sin that we constantly battle as Christians in the church is our own sense of pride, where we believe we are better than we are. We tend to get set in our ways. The older I get, though I am young, I am starting to get set in my ways. And when we get set in our ways, we can miss the whole gospel. We must learn that we need Jesus. We must learn from the Pharisees' mistake here. Do not be like them. Recognize your sin and recognize your need. Recognize that you are a sinner in the sight of a holy God and recognize that you need him. Why do you need him, though? That gets us to our last point. We need him because he gives us new clothes. That's what we see. Jesus calls sinners to repentance. You are that sinner. You need Jesus. And in that need, he offers you a solution. He offers you new clothes. We get three parables in this passage. You may only see two because two of them are really close. But there are three parables for three types of people in this world. Jesus wants you to gut everything and to accept him fully. But some and many have different responses 
than being like this crew of misfits. And we get those three here. I want you to look at these three parables with me. The first is the patchwork Jesus, the patchwork Christian. Verse 36, and he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Jesus is not uh, writing a fashion blog here. So don't take this one for one. This is allegorical. You may say, Scott, there's many reasons to cut new clothes into old clothes. I don't have any opinion on that. I let the fashionistas of PPC decide that. Uh, but what Jesus is saying, allegorically, is it is a waste of money to patch the old with the new because it ruins the old. And that is one response that we could have to the gospel. I want part of the gospel, but not the other part. I want the parts of Jesus that I like. I want to patch Jesus into my old life. I want to patchwork Christ. There are many people in the Christian faith that are like this. I remember a girl that I went to youth ministry with who was a leader in our program. She wanted a patchwork Christ. She wanted parts of Christ, the parts that seem so loving and gracious in the New Testament. But she hated the parts of Christ, especially the parts of Paul that revealed Christ there later. And what did that lead her to? She thought that the New Testament was too dogmatic and mean, that sexual chastity and purity was too rigid, that perhaps Paul in 1 Timothy was too tight for leadership in the church. What did this patchwork Christ lead her to? Let her away from Christ. Sometimes we want the old life and the new, and we want to put some of the new on the old and keep the parts of the old. There are light people like that perhaps in our own congregation. Patchwork Christ. I, I want, yes, I will worship Jesus on Sunday, but I only want the parts of him throughout the rest of the week that already agree with the things that I like and do. We want to patch him in. That will not do. The second response that is unfulfilling is the bottled up Christ. We see this in the parable of the wineskins, verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the wineskins and it will be spilled. The skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put in fresh wineskins. Why can't we put new wine in old wineskins? It's because old wineskins are not strong enough to contain new wine. You may say, why? is because these wineskins were used in the fermentation process of the wine. And so if you used old wineskins, you think of some cracked wineskin, as the, the wine would ferment, the skin would bloat. And as the skin would bloat, if it was too old, the skin itself would burst. It would be destroyed. They would come, wake up, look in their cellar, and there would be wine all over their cellar because they decided to let it ride and not buy new wineskins. That's why you needed to use new. You use new with new because, because that is how the new is contained. Sometimes we're not like the girl that I shared just a moment ago that wanted to patch Christ on. Sometimes we want to accept all of Christ and all of our old lives. We want all of Jesus and all of our previous existence. We want our cake and eat it too. We want both and. 
We want to have all of Jesus and everything that we've had before us. We sometimes call this in the church antinomianism, where you're anti-law, anti the commands of Scripture. We want all of Christ, but we don't want to live in a way that is worthy of Christ. We want to put Jesus into old wineskins. Yes, we accept Jesus, but I also want my full other life as well. I want everything that is new to fit in to everything that is old. But Jesus brings an explosive joy. (laughs) He brings an explosive joy that if these Pharisees would have accepted Jesus under their own understanding and framework, he would have destroyed their religion as he is doing before their very eyes as he invites these people to be with him. That explosive joy cannot be handled in the old body. He must grant all new. The third parable here, though, in verse 39 is those who reject Christ. We have those who want to patch Christ. We have those who want to bottle up Christ. And then finally, we have those who reject Christ. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. These are the Pharisees in this passage. We get three options for everyone who hears the gospel, who doesn't want to embrace it fully. The worst is this. Those who reject it outright. The Pharisees, they love their old wine. This is perhaps an odd illustration because usually when you think of wine, the older the better, right? You want that, that bottle that says like 1679 or something. You don't want the bottle that says 2023. It's an inferior bottle. But that, Jesus isn't playing the, those sorts of games. He has a different table to view what is good. And in Jesus' religious mind, new is better. The old is poor, new is better. We see this at the, the wedding of Cana where the new is better. Jesus says there are many who have no desire for the new. They love their old self-righteousness. They love their old pride. They love their old religion. Uh, My grandfather never lived through the Great Depression, but he sometimes had Great Depression tendencies. Uh, One of them was his taste in coffee. Uh, You might say, well, how do you have a Great Depression tendency with coffee? You just put it in a, a percolator and you let it brew and it is good. His tendency was that he would reuse the same grounds over multiple occasions. And I only had to have that coffee once to know that I would never have it again. I remember I was going to Moody Bible Institute at the time for a, a, like a 6 a.m. class in Greek, and I, th- I didn't have time to brew my own coffee, and so I go downstairs, and my grandfather always had it ready. I was like, oh, this is great. I ha- this is great, and I, I get my thermos, and, and I take a drink, and it looked not right. I, it seems like it had gone through the percolator at least three times. It was brown water. There was no caffeinated bubbles left no caffeine, and I took one sip, and it was like it was no coffee at all. I, I spit it out. It was so grotesque. Yeah, I offer my grandfather good coffee, and you can expect how this is going to go given the last parable. He wanted nothing to do with it. It was disgusting to him, <laughs> though it was eminently superior in every faculty. The type of bean was hand-selected by me, ground by me. It was made in a French press. The temperature of the water was perfectly dialed in to the exact degree to make a good cup of joe. 
It sat there for the perfect amount of time before I plunged it down. It was an esteemed cup of coffee. And he about had the same response as I had to his terrible coffee. What is this? I like mine better. My Folgers three times over. Sometimes people, though it is objectively terrible, love the old stuff. And that is true for the Pharisees, but I hope it's not true for you. I hope you don't love the old stuff. I hope you love the new. And that's the application here when we think through this last point that Jesus clothes you. He does not desire for you to be any of the three parables that we have seen in this passage. He desires that you be wholly new, that you be a new wineskin with new wine, that you would accept the whole new garment and not cut out the pieces that you like, that you would not go back to the old wine, but that you would remain with the new. Jesus wants all of you, just like he wanted all the tax collectors, all the blind, all the lame, all those who were at the feast, he wanted all of them. And that's why he gathered as the great physician to be with them, to present to all of them all of himself. And Jesus does the same for you today. He presents all of himself to you because he wants all of you. Put down the scissors, grab the new skin, and embrace the holy new Christ. He will tear down every wall, and he'll erect something totally new. We're reminded in Isaiah 62 of this great call, and this is where we'll close today, where Isaiah says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in robes of his righteousness as a bridegroom adores his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. A great reminder for all of us today. Be like Isaiah as he wrote these words. It is time to celebrate. Yes, you are a sinner, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, your rags turn to riches and you celebrate his salvation. Let us close in prayer. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we, O Lord, pray and thank you for your grace and truth that you would invite people such as us, members, visitors, regular attenders of Providence Presbyterian Church, to gather on this day, a day of festival gathering and banquet where you, O Lord, are our honored guest. We pray, O Lord, today that as guests to this great banquet, that we would recognize our own sin, that we would see our need for Christ, and that we would allow him to clothe us in his righteousness, that we might drink of his new wine. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.